0: Your chair of the CEA, Brenda, Am I right? Am I right? um, and I were sitting at a Dort football game two years ago. Uh, it was a cold day way up in the top of the stands, and we just got in a conversation, and she said that, yeah, her one of her responsibilities were to put these conferences together. And we were just chatting about Dort and um, its history, and we got on the subject of leading in contentious times, and she asked if I would uh, make a presentation. Um, and so that's where this came from, and I'm honored to be with you. I, as mentioned, a product of Christian education, a uh, graduate of Chicago Christian High School, Chicago Southwest. <laughs> 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 um, I always say that there's a reason I'm president at George University and not at Trinity where I went. Um, my freshman RA was actually in the last session two hours ago. <laughs> anyway. Mac Wiener, Mac Wiener from Trinity, uh, Timothy Christian Schools was my freshman RA and just like a lot of college students I did some growing up between freshman year and college and today. I'll just leave that one But uh, oh a couple other things. Uh, full transparency these are golf shoes. Um, so uh, long story my wife and I had a fundraising event in Cedar Lake Indiana last night and drove her to West Lafayette. Her dad lives there She spending the day with him So we came into his house last night about midnight, dressed in my fancy clothes, with my dress shoes. Anyway, they're still in West Lafayette in my bedroom there. So I'm driving up here and my choices were the tennis shoes I drove up in or my golf shoes or go buy shoes. So you got my golf shoes. Um, I don't want anybody like sitting in the audience going like, the dude had golf shoes on. What's up with that? Just tell me the reason. Uh, Maybe not your observing about shoes as I am, but uh, if I catch myself on the carpet here I might fall. Anyway, um, my sense is is that the conversation that I had with Brenda that day um, about um contentious things, and I've just got a short list here, I'm just going to read down the list, and we can go anywhere you want in this conversation, please don't live tweet anything, um, if I upset you, anger you, that is not my intention. I'm just going to have a real conversation about the world that we live in today. Um, and I'll end with, with with some thoughts. But here are the things that I just wrote down. What are the contentious things in a decade, or a little bit better than that, I was provost at Dort for four years. The contentious things that we've dealt with. Um, so the age of the earth and creation, like... Right? like what is the college going to teach about creation and the age of the earth? Anybody at schools ever talked about that? (laughs) Um, Women in office, that was a little bit before my time at Dort, um, when the Christian Reformed Church did what it did with women in office, but that one continues to go on from time to time. Sabbath observance, um, and we have a residential campus. All of the schools save us and Northwestern College um, are Play their athletic events on Sundays. We don't. Um, it's a contentious issue. Uh, we've had a number of contentious terminations. Uh, maybe Dort's unique in that you know we have employees that sometimes don't make good decisions, and so we've had some contentious terminations. Nobody's had that. Okay. Um, we had George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, uh, a couple of years ago, and, and how do you deal with um, the sin of of racial animosity um, on a college campus or in our culture? Um, starting football. Um, I mentioned we started a football game. So I became provost in 2008. We, we started football in 2008. It was our first varsity year. The faculty voted 99 to one to not start football. I see a Northwestern shirt in the audience. There we go. Um, they beat us. Last <laughs> we tell that story too. But you guys beat us 23 to nothing last week in football. So good for you. Um, but uh, so the faculty voted 99 to one not to start football. And then I became provost and had to implement football on our campus. So that's been fun and it's been a joy and it's been great. And don't hide your Northwestern shirt. Um, So my history is this: I grew up in Chicago, had a career in business in Michigan, moved to Iowa to teach business at Dordt. I only taught for three years. I wasn't—I was okay, but I didn't love it. And so I quit and I started running a company in Iowa. Who was the CEO was a Northwestern grad. He died of a heart attack one morning on his way to work. So I bought the company with some friends. Uh, from his widow, he was on Northwestern's board at the time when he died. Got to know the president of Northwestern, he asked me to be on the board of Northwestern. And I came to Northwestern, I'm like, didn't you used to teach at Dort? Like, yeah. Well, why are you here? I said, because I love Christian education. And then I, the day I became provost at Dort, I was still on Northwestern's board, and I brought back my three ring binder to the president at the time, and I said, you should probably have this back. And so, yes. Christian education is way bigger than any one school, any one university. Northwestern is the second best Christian college in the world. It's all good. It's all good. Um, abortion, um, yeah, where we're at on abortion. LGBTQ+, plus, happy to talk about that as much or as little as you want to today. Um, but I'll tell you two quick stories just of, of two things. One is when I first became president in 2012, my first decision was this. Um, our former president had been deferring a decision, not because he wanted to defer it. That's not what I'm saying in any way. He was a great president. I'll tell you some stories about how he mentored me into leading through contentious times. But at that time the Affordable Care Act was there, and we my choice was this. Either put the morning after pill and the week after pill in our health plan, and we had covered traditional birth control in our health plan forever. But we either had to put the morning after pill in, week after pill our health plan, or have, I think it was $12,000 a day fines. So those are my, my absolute first decision. In the summer, I became president. And I said, I don't like those decisions. I don't like those choices. Um, just like my four-year-old used to say when I said, you could do this or that. I don't like those. Choices. So we navigated that um, in a different way. I'm happy to talk about, but well, we brought a lawsuit against that. Um, and so I spent the first six and a half years of my presidency and you know, a lawsuit against the federal government, while accepting, you know, give or take seven million dollars of federal funds one way or the other into our um, deal. Um, so that was the first big decision, and it was contentious. My board chair actually did not want us to sue the federal government. <coughs> um, our board chair is a great guy, but he just said, I think you're putting yourself in a bad situation by doing that. I would just put in a health plan, nobody will ever choose it. That was what the board chair said. I had the board in various states and I had to kind of lead the board through that. So that was was one that um, was a contentious issue. Uh, But the one that probably got Brenda to take me to speak was um, we were talking about uh, President Trump three years ago at that football game. So um, I'll just tell you the bigger context of that. I think it's instructive. Um, I'm not talking, I'm gonna try as hard as I can not to be political today, but it's contentious. Sorry, I'm going to get the slide back up. You guys hit the wrong button in my pocket. Um, But I became president in 2012, and Iowa is a weird place, right? We have the Iowa caucuses um, that every politician who might want to be president someday comes to Iowa and eats pork chops on a stick and stands on a hay bale and acts Iowa, right? You see? (laughs) Um, You know what I'm talking about. And I think that's a great opportunity for us educationally. So when I became president in 2012, I said, you know what? We should have all the candidates to campus and give them a a room like this for an hour to make the presentation and take questions from the audience. So we did that in 2012. It was great. 2016. um, We had all 17. Originally, there were 17 people running for president on the Republican side. And up in Northwest Iowa, um, we are in a red corner of a red-ish state. So we beg Bernie and Hillary to come up, but they just don't come. It's not worth the diesel fuel from Des Moines for the couple of votes they're going to get. Again, it's not a partisan thing for me to say. It's just we beg Hillary and Bernie to come to campus. They won't come. We had all 17 of the Republicans, some of them multiple times. So in January, late in the process, like two weeks before the the caucus, President uh, then-candidate Trump, it was his turn. And Saturday morning it was like twelve below zero. We had protesters outside. I had gotten letters ahead of time. It was after the excess Hollywood stuff came out. And like, why is a Christian college would you have President Trump on your campus? And I responded to that at the time this way. I put out an open letter. I do very few open letters. Um, if you're ahead of school, you're gonna get pressed all the time. Like the school has to speak on this. And they look at colleges a little bit more than high schools, but and do not do that. Don't start. Because next thing you know, you're, you know, hey, you know, gas prices are up. What do you think about that? <laughs> I'm sad about it. <laughs> Literally, some of my friends who are Christian College presidents have got caught in that. And they feel like, now, if they don't put out a statement, then they're saying more. So I put out very few. I think I've done three in 10. But when Trump was coming to campus, our alumni were really asking, like, how is this appropriate? And I, I wrote this. Um, I had three choices. One is have no candidates come to campus. And given that we're in Iowa and have this opportunity that they'll all come, it would be an abrogation of my responsibilities or duties to not have any of them come. I truly believe that. Although I've got friends who are presidents of Iowa colleges are like, we never want them to come. It's always a controversy. It's like, controversy is there. I want our students. I think apathy about politics for young Christians is worse um, than partisanship. So we're going to have it. Two is I could choose, or the board could choose. Well, wow, we're going to have this candidate, but not that candidate. Well, number one, that's illegal, right? We would actually lose our our federal nonprofit status if we simply pay. Or I just bring them all and see what comes. So that's what I put out before he came. And again, we protesters outside. He came. Um, he ended his speech this way. I'll never forget. When I'm president, I will work my ass off for you Christians. <laughs> Your audience, I guess, right? <laughs> I'll never forget. But that was the la- that was the l- the second most inappropriate thing he said that morning. Because that morning he chose to say on our campus, uh, "I am so popular, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue in New York and they'd still vote for me." It's the only place he's ever said that. Fortunately, our marketing department did not have the dork banner behind it. <laughs> but if you Google it watch it on YouTube, that's our college's auditorium, the B.J. Non-auditorium at Dort University. Um, walking home that day with my wife, it was a snowy morning, and I said, you know, all the grief I'm going to have to deal with over the next month because of what he said, it's going to be worth it because he's never going to be a candidate. <laughs> so that's how smart I am. <laughs> Yeah, got a lot of grief. Put out a public statement at that time, and I said, I have no idea why he thought that was an appropriate thing to say as a candidate for office in the United States. But I do trust that Dork's faculty and students will be able to, you know, go into a Christian worldview and a biblical understanding of leadership and decide appropriately. That's what I put out, and I actually got tons of good press or accolades, encouragement from people because we had done it ahead of time. We followed up with just i'm not going to try to condemn or um you know validate that stuff but um yeah we'll see in 2024 if i'm stupid enough to bring all the candles <laughs> but but I, I do um yeah i do have the sense that that's why she wanted me to come talk to us um, I, I think as christians organizations we can't just sit back and hide and act like this stuff doesn't happen um, I, I can tell you as a leader, um, yeah, there are dark days. There's no doubt about it. But we're called into it, and, and we're called into it by the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, and he'll bring us through. So um, those are the, my two biggest ones. Um, yeah, the, the abortion thing that we dealt with and then the, the Trump deal. Um, and then, yeah, the LGBTQ uh, piece. But So I've just got some ideas, and then we're going to just open up for questions. Um, I don't pretend to be the expert on this, but I um, yeah, I wrote this book, The is Change Agent, I do like mixing it up, um, I do like talking about real things, um, and, and uh, I've got this, my wife and I have every freshman over for dinner at door, in groups of 40 throughout the fall semester, so that's, uh, we bring them over in 40s, this year was 12 different um, dinners, um, and at the end of the night we just have, to ask the president anything, so I'll just stand up in front of the students for Long as they want sometimes it goes for 40 minutes and, and I never have dodged a question and I won't do that today either but the weirdest question I ever got was boxers or briefs so uh, <laughs> if you don't have to ask that today that's been asked by our students <laughs> um, but a few passages that I'm going to just throw up there is as things that bring me back to Lord you can get me through this kind of an approach or Lord this is the attitude that I need to try to have personally and try to have to mentor and model the community through to get through this contentious deal. So let us not become weary and well-doing for the proper time when we need harvest if we do not give up. And I, I see hopeful signs. When I talk to administrators of schools right now, um, yeah, there was a time, I talked about in the earlier session, somebody asked a question that prompted this response. Um, what if we can't find people um, who wanna come to our schools and we just go away? And I had a really interesting conversation with my mentor, my predecessor, this job, Dr. Zostrow, when I was provost for two years. Because at that time, I was saying, if we're going to take these stances to, to remain biblically faithful, what if nobody wants to come? And he goes, then we'll turn off the lights. Like, this is what we do as Christian organizations, is be distinctive, be salty, be light. And if nobody wants to come anymore, then it's over. But he says, I don't worry about that. And it was a real fundamental moment for me of a leader that I respected near his retirement, Giving me the perspective of decades, and I hope to, to share some of that with you today is, do not become weary in well-doing. What, what well-doing means on your campus might be a little different than mine. That I'm not here to say, we should take this position or that position. I'm just here to say, you, you, you can't avoid it. Um, Satan is real. The brokenness of all creation is real until Christ comes again, and it's gonna be contentious, and for a variety of reasons, it's more contentious now, probably, than it's ever been, and I'm gonna share a few things with you. Um, I really take a lot of encouragement from this passage. This is 1 Corinthians 1. Paul's writing, and there's a in the Corinthian church, there's a, there's basically dissension. There's like, we want to follow the Titus or Gaius or we want to follow whoever it is, right? In that in the early. But then in, in 18 he says, wait, um, the wisdom that you think this person is teaching or that person is teaching is not always Christ's wisdom, and, and, and that God's wisdom will confound the world. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but those who are saved is the power of God for His written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart." That's kind of been a theme that we've used at Dort is that, as I mentioned, when I was faced with the abortion question, $12,000 a day, fine, or put in a health plan. I don't like those choices. And I think if we really study Christ, we, we will see that... He confounded the wisdom of the world in ways that I think we need to take into our leadership. Um, some people call it a third way. Um, you know, if you read the um, Sermon on the Mount, number of places in the Sermon on the Mount, great passages that I go back to right? you have heard it said, right, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, I think that's the kind of thinking I want to try to encourage you to do is when you're faced with we need to this or this. We can make this group happy or this group happy. I, I, don't, I don't think we're going to settle for that. It's not always simple, and I don't mean to say it, it, it is. But I, I think Christ is calling us to something beyond that. And I actually learned that in the corporate world, and I'm going to share that with you. And then only later on by leading more intentionally in a Christian organization have I realized that it's, that it's the wisdom of Christ applied in organizational ways. It's really, really powerful. Uh, I mentioned this. You've heard it said Um, on the LGBT same sex marriage thing this piece of of the woman caught in adultery and by the way um, it's been really fundamental for us Um, whenever I talk about that story I always say you know it was a woman caught in adultery but like where was the dude caught in adultery like that's missing somehow and I don't know what to make of that but always remind people of that I just think it's really important um, to do that for whatever reason, I should. it with you. But Aaron Chapel, Dina Chapel, our, our campus ministries, and, and our student services has really used this as our meta for, uh, we call it playing the long game at DORC with sexuality. If we've got a student um, confused. A couple things, sorry. Uh, don't tweet any of this today, please. Um, a couple things that have been helpful for me, I've had people come to me as president saying, you know you've got a transgender student you've got a student who's same-sex attracted you need to kick him out i said yep i said you know we had last weekend was a really bad weekend at Dort. we had a lot of sexual sin at Dort. about 99.5 percent of it was heterosexual and about half a percent was same-sex attracted it's okay i'm going to work on all of them and that's just sort of i don't know if that's a perfect way of you've heard it said right but I say to you, but that has been a really helpful little piece that, that I've now thrown in called a trick of the trade. Because it all of a sudden stops people up. And I really do think that, that whatever we're talking about in terms of sex, transgender, same-sex attraction, didn't start like in the last seven years. It started like 60, 70 years ago when you, know, you would go into a, a gas station and they'd have girly posters sitting up and we all pumped our gas as Christians and didn't comment on it. We've been broken about sexual sin long before any of this showed up on our radar. And I think as heads of school, if you can help people see that bigger context, you will, just like Jesus with the Pharisees when, when it was, hey, you know what, you know, your disciples healed somebody on Sunday, what are you going to do about it? Like, dude, back up, see it in a bigger context. And, and no matter what your school's best solution is for, for trans or, or same-sex put it in the bigger context. It will help just, I think, get it back through Jesus' conversation rather than a we have to deal with this cultural conversation right now So for what that's worth. Um, so we have really focused on this, neither do I condemn you, and go and say no more. I think that Jesus can do those two things simultaneously Um, is really important in terms of of, of an attitude. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Again, you know, should we pay taxes? Like, they were looking for a yes or a no answer. Jesus says, wait, give me a coin. Whose picture is that? And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and God what is God's. And now we've spent 2,000 years figuring out what that means in terms of civil authorities and tax policy. I think that's what Jesus asks us to do on these issues that appear to be binary or black and white issues. And I'm not talking about a mushy middle or everything is gray, there is no truth. That's not what I'm talking about. But I think if as leaders of old Christian organizations, if we can change get into a bigger landscape, I think you're gonna lead better, um, is my You've heard this, Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. That's not the first time you've heard that, I hope, right? That, that Jesus does, I think, right? I didn't come to serve, to be served, but to serve. Washing feet, a leader washing feet. Those are the kinds of things that I want to infect our young people with in terms of what it looks to be a Christian in the culture. No matter what the issue comes up, when it's my great grandkids, probably going to be talking about stuff that are this contentious that I don't even think of today. But I want them to have the heart of Jesus and the attitude of that, and that's really, I think, what our jobs are. Um, there's a theologian, Walter Wink, and I, I've only recently gotten to know his work, and so I'm not endorsing everything about him. He comes out of the Anabaptist tradition, more of the peace tradition, so my friends might be more familiar. <coughs> the only thing I know is he's written some really good stuff about a third way, this, this being Jesus people in a third way. Our inclination when we're, when we're, when we're shown up and this or that is either a fight or a flight. And Walter Wink talks a lot about we can be third way people. We can do the, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more kinds of things. So if you're interested in that, you might want to read some Walter Wink. Um, I do think this issue of peaceful and quiet lives is a really important piece. Um, before Dort students graduate, my wife and I have them again over at our home in small groups before they graduate. That, the, the one thing when they're freshmen is to, to just welcome them, get to know them and give them an orientation at the one in their graduation semester is to ask them, what did we do well at and what could we do better? And we take that as assessment data into our piece when the students say, hey, this has to change, that class wasn't great, we use that as an assessment tool. And there I use uh, 1 Peter 3, I think it's 15 and 16, to live such good lives among the nations, or the aliens, or the natives, or whatever, the pagans, depending on your translation, live such good lives among the people that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they will come to know God on the day he visits us. I just think that passage, just like this peaceful and quiet lives. um, I am not a Christian nationalist, I think, that, but we're seeing that side of Christianity come up. And I actually think it's a really small part, but the media is wanting to say it's like all of us. And I think we have to help young people understand, because I don't know that they're gonna wanna be Christians if they're thought of as soon as they say Christians, well, I know all about you and you're a Christian nationalist and we hate you, then they're not even going to want to be Christians. So we're going to have to figure out how to infect them with a Jesus way of living that doesn't put them immediately on the defensive in culture, but understands how to lean into it as well. And I think peaceful and quiet lives or the passage from from, from 1 Peter 3 is a good one. So I got this first in the corporate world, honestly. Um, You know Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Some of you have heard of that. Before he wrote *Good to Great*, he actually wrote a book called *Built to Last*, and it's about enduring companies. And Jim actually talks about things like core values and mission statements for companies are the things that allow them to exist for hundreds of years as for-profit organizations. And that's really where I, in my MBA and so and in my corporate world, and I became provost at Durden. I'm Like, wait, the way to lead a Christian organization is the same way Jim Collins was talking about it. But I think Jim is on this. And I think this, the brilliance of the and versus the tyranny of the or. And as I've observed contentious issues, board, students, faculty, donors, coming to me saying, you've got to do something about this. Because you're doing this, we want you to do that. It's like, well, it's this or that. No, there's a brilliance of the and. And I really think that, although Collins isn't a Christian, he's talking about that same kind of third way or upside downness, where we don't have to fall for a binary choice. And again, not talking about lacking the truth or facts or science, that's not what I'm talking about, but I'll just, if you're interested in that at all, Built to Last is probably one of the best books about organizational leadership I've ever read, not necessarily by a Christian. I will throw this one out for Max Dupree. You know who Max is? Grant Herman Miller. He was a board member at Hope College for a long time at Fuller Theological Seminary. Leadership as an Art is probably one of the best books I've ever read about leadership. And he starts out this way, that the first responsibility of the leader is to define reality, and the last is to say thank you, and in between the two, the, the leader becomes a servant and a debtor. I think Max was a serious Christian wrestling with big time organizational leadership, a publicly traded company in Herman Miller, Fuller Theological Seminary, and College. And I think the defining reality is what I've been contending for these first few minutes. You, as a leader, when people want to say, This is reality, you have to choose this or that, is to step back and say, We're going to define reality in a bigger arc that God is working at. And and maybe the sin that you want us to deal with or the problem didn't start two weeks ago, right? We have a student that we're working with on sexuality issues. We always say that we're going to play the long game. That, like, they're a sophomore, they didn't start having these sexual issues two weeks ago. And we're not likely to fix them in two weeks. So we have to play the long game and understand And the way that our campus ministries and student life are working with them is, one of the first questions they'll ask is, where do you see Jesus in your sexuality? And see, so that's a, a question that just opens things up in a new way. It's not about who are you attracted to, what did you do last weekend, where do you think you're going to end up married? It's like, where do you see Jesus in this? And that, that opening question has, they say, been able to really open things up in new ways. And I think that's the defining of reality, is that people want to talk about it like this, and when you pull out, you open up the aperture and look at a situation more broadly, I think you just get different results. And those are the kinds of things that that we're working on. Just helpful, maybe. I'm just gonna run um, through some slides. I didn't mean for this to be overly political, but it's unavoidable. So literally, um, January of 2020, I have a habit or a a tradition at DoorDot, I always get the first chapel of the new semester in January. Happened to be, it was the Wednesday, uh, whatever it was, January 17th, we have chapel at 11 on Wednesdays, which happens to be noon in Washington, D.C. So, literally, I'm taking the stage that Trump said I could shoot somebody. I'm taking the stage to get a chapel, and we're inaugurating Biden in Washington, D.C. Like within a minute. And I chose to speak on this issue of contentiousness and polarity in our culture. So, I started by, yeah, opening with prayer, um, said that, yeah, we're getting a new president, we're going to pray for him. So, we prayed at that moment. And I presented this data um, to the students at Dort. And if you're feeling like polarity is there, uh, this Pew Research, since 1994 they've been doing this research. So here you see they've got a, a line for the, the median Republican and the median Democrat, the average, if you will. And then they show of all the people that are Democrats, from consistently liberal to consistently conservative, like there are some people... Over on that right, in 1994, who voted Democrat, but I would say they're consistently conservative when you ask them about 20 elements. People who vote Republican, are consistently liberal, and da 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 So it's a mix. But let's look at what's happened over the last 30, 40 years um, in America. So 1994, Pew does this research every four or five years. In 1999, you see, basically everybody moved a little bit more, whatever you want to call it, liberal i'm not here to say liberal is good and that's not what i'm here to say i'm just here to show you why you're feeling what you're feeling 2004 um, actually democrats pretty much stayed where they were in terms of the median but the republicans actually became a little bit more liberal 2011 republicans pulled back a little bit 2015 more space 2017 more space yet between the average Republican and the average Democrat. And I think we can do this um, not just about politics. We can do it about social issues. We can do it about, yeah, corporal punishment. We can do it about a lot of things. It's not just, it's just really good data to, to have us all understand why we're feeling what we feel. So let's just take a look. 1994, like the average person that was a Democrat, the average person that was a Republican, there was this much space in between them. When you take the Pew Research and all these conservative and liberal, how do you feel about all these things? That was that much space. 2017. Four and a half times of difference. And what do you think since 17? It's barely come back to (laughs) 1994. I I can't wait for the Pew Research to come out yet another one or two years. This is why we're feeling what we're feeling. Um, I'll dive into detail just a little bit more. So let's just take a. Hang on, let me find it. I want to show you this. Oh, Pew also separates the research into everybody, which is on the left, the overall population, and then I would say people like me who are politically engaged. You know, you've got friends who are like, "Ah, I don't know who I'm voting for, like a day before the election, and you've got people who pay attention for everything about everything. Those are the politically engaged. So the difference between the politically engaged and the overall population back in 1994 was about two and a half times. That's big, even for 1994, right? There was some, you know the kind of people that you don't want to have at your dinner party because all they want to do is talk about politics. Those are the people on the right <laughs> Interestingly, in 2017, there's no difference between the general population and the politically engaged. We're all thinking that politics is, is everything. We've all become know sort of rapid up the kinds of people I think that's really interesting for us to understand in terms of meeting Christian schools but let me just go back to this um, from 1994 to 2017 and we're going to take every year um, through this so um, there's where the median Republican moved more conservative there's where the median Democrat moved um, more liberal um, and let me show you this This is, I think, what we're feeling, is on the right-hand side. We're all politically engaged today, and we've got these people on the polls. And you might be one of them, I'm not judging you, I'm just saying that it's this polarity that we are so far apart, it's why it's hard, whether it's at church or just over the fence in the backyard, to just have a conversation with people because you don't know how, how they're feeling. But it's that, and it's that middle that is just shrinking, right? Today, we really don't see what I started the presentation with of you know somebody who is voting Democrat who's consistently conservative or the other way around it's like we just can't see um, one another for who we are and that's the space those are your, the people in your schools and we need to lead in that environment and there's opportunity there um, but there's also challenge so let me just pause there um, with some early reflections and just hear what's going on in your brain as I'm standing up here I would just love to hear um, I'm happy to talk about any of these things specifically. Um, probably the, the biggest one that I'll talk about, if you don't have any questions right now, is, is creation and the age of the earth. I think that's a, an interesting um, dort story that I'll be happy to share. But thoughts so far? Questions? Yes? Obviously, higher ed is a different context than P12, but how do you avoid making statements on every given issue when you feel a lot of pressure? What's your typical answer when they're like, why aren't you saying something? Well, I'd say um, the only ones that I've done post, post George Floyd um, murder and then uh, Trump, and actually post George Floyd, I was probably three weeks um, after he died before I put out a statement because um, because we've not had that tradition. My first thing was when I started getting comments from um, alumni that cared, so I set up a couple of Zoom calls with our alumni that cared enough to want to talk about it, and I just listened to them, and I think that's that's part of it is. Um, I do have board members um, who say to me, you spend an awful lot of time um, following up on stuff. And I just, it's not that big. We have 20,000 alumni. I mean, if an alumnus cares, actually somebody came up to me. Sorry. Came up to me at the state. like, did my grandpa send you his diploma after Trump was on campus? Because my grandpa was so mad, he said after he was going to send you his diploma back. I'm like, no, I didn't get it. But like, I, like, I was interested. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, um, I do follow up on a lot of, of like when I, when someone cares. In the corporate world, um, I learned this customers that complain are actually giving you a signal that they still care enough to complain. There's nine other people who have given up on you and they're not complaining. I just think it's really important if somebody's willing to come to your office, send you a note, yeah. I still read anonymous complaints that I get. My predecessor told me not to. I just can't help myself. So I do read anonymous ones. I'm pretty about them and then throw them away. Um, but there are, there are administrators I know that if it's anonymous, they, that as soon as they see it's anonymous, they'll just throw it away. They won't even think about what it was like. No, there's data in there. But a lot of listening. Um, but also just not getting caught in it. Because once you start, you are now, you, you own a puppy. And it has to be taken out every time it an issue sense other questions thoughts at this point proceeding otherwise i'll talk about a couple of specifics but i'm really interested to know what's what's helpful to talk about please we hear about students as they grow up turning away from the faith in more bigger bigger numbers do you have any opinions on some of the main drivers of that hmm. i do think um that our lack of ability to have third-way conversations with students all the way through, I, I do believe that thinking that you need to show up for church all fixed up and already forgiven and, and sanctified before you ever show up at church scares people away. Uh, I think we have to recognize and so being able to, you know, mentor young people with, a, you know, a, teachers that are willing to say, you know what, yesterday I, I was angry with you and I shouldn't have. I'm so, I want to apologize to the class today because I was really short with you. Like, that kind of humility of a third grade teacher I think allows them to imagine themselves being a Christian when they're 40 to realize that I don't have to be all fixed up. So I do think that simple answers um, as a church and I think we've been a no-show particularly on sexuality for a long time I could see through that. That's one of my fears. Um, I also think um, that um, I'll just tell you why we don't have church at Dort. Um, I do think that um, too often putting students, whether they be kindergartners or college students, in an environment where you know um, we lack intergenerational worship, so we will never have campus church on Sundays at Sunday evening we do a, a praise and worship time, but Sunday mornings, like, we won't have, and, and I, I know there are Christian college campuses that do, because they're like, well, students can just kind of roll out of bed and go to the campus center and have church. Like, that's not church. I might be a little old school, um, but that's not church. So we push students to get to intergenerational worship and build that habit. And, yeah, freshman year, they're out of and dad's house. I know more of them stay away from church probably than go the first couple of months at the door. But that, that ethos of getting into intergenerational worship in a healthy church, I think is really important. Um, yeah, certainly the, the crises of some of our biggest mega pastors in the world has made Christianity way like, like, last week I was listening to you and now I find out you're whatever. Um, those are those are things. But again, I'm not this is not a door commercial but we, one of the biggest measures that I look at is um, plugging into a local church after graduation. We Every five years, we ask every Dork graduate that we can get a hold of in our surveys. Are you a member of a local church? We're at like 94% of all of our alumni, And to me, that's like, whatever happens on campus, whatever's in the curriculum, um, yeah. Are they, are they plugged into a local church? And yeah, are they paying back their student loans? Those are like, the two <laughs> things that helps, like, I go student loans. I did, I did put out a statement on student loans. Again, not a public statement. It's just a one on our, on our DORT website recently I thought that was that was news in our sector that I was getting asked a lot about so I put out a general statement on, on student loans, which is, hey if you qualify, go get it. And I this is a dumb way for our country to fix this. That so that was my statement. With a lot of nicer words in it. But don't tweet anything I say to please. Um, let me push forward a little bit Um, think about how to do this Um, no, it's earlier on sorry, there's a lot of good stuff in here, it's just not organized perfectly Um, I'm going to go to this slide the importance of looking ahead, and I'll talk about creation at Dort Um, so so I know you thought, I'm going to a Christian conference, I'm sure I'll hear a leadership quote from Machiavelli. I'm sure all of you thought that. If you've never read The Prince and you're a school leader, um, I think you're missing something honestly. Um, Machiavellian has become something that is negative and um, is about manipulation. Uh, I raised four kids. Like My wife and I manipulated our kids a lot. <laughs> And then great kindergarten teachers and great fourth grade teachers manipulate kids a lot. Um, There's a fine line in that. Is it done ethically? Is it done, you know, but um, this is one of my favorite leadership quotes, honestly, about um, thinking ahead and seeing ahead as a leader. Thus it happens in matters of state. For knowing afar off which is only given a prudent man to do, the evils that are brewing, they are easily cured. But when for want of such knowledge, they are allowed to grow so that everyone can recognize that there is no longer any remedy to be found. I'll tell you a story about my predecessor, Dr. Zostler. <coughs> I was provost. Uh, I was two years in. And he said, Eric, someday there's going to become a real contentious issue at Dort over creation science, creation, the age of the earth, and all of that. Today, it's not brewing that much. This is back in 2010. It was just... But he had a sense that it was gonna come on our campus in a big way. He said, we're gonna have a task group of biology, chemistry, theology, faculty, and you and I, and we're gonna spend a year on it and come up with a statement about how Dort's going to handle creation, the age of the earth, and these kinds. I thought, dude, I got a lot of stuff to do this week, but if it's not killing us today, why would we spend this time just "Trust me." So we just met monthly for a year with those faculty. And we came up with a statement And I would say that time that we spent that year has saved me literally hundreds of hours of trouble um, into the future. And I guess my encouragement to you as as leaders head to school, but even even in your fourth grade class, there are ways to set up the year. That's what I mean by that quote from Max Dupree about defining reality. Like, what are we going to spend our time on? And we spent a year building this statement, and couple things happened. One is the faculty members could could say what they wanted in that. Two, we worked with the Board of Trustees, so it was a mutually built statement. But three now, we've been able to hire against that for 15 years, and it's, I would say, just kept us from having problems. Um, Today on on LGBTQ things, we're pretty overt about what our campus environment's gonna look like. And we had the student, and I remember I was scared to death. Uh, we started an online master's degree program in social work. And a student applied um, and said, hey, I've read your statement on human sexuality. Um, I'm in a same-sex marriage. I probably shouldn't apply at to her, should I? I said, we said, no. She said, thank you for being that up front with me. I will go find a program that really meets my needs, but I respect you guys for that. You know, I'm thinking when my team say, what should we say? I said, oh, tell them how it is. And I thought, yeah, we could end up being sued over this. It could be a big public relations mess. I've just not found that. I think the more clear you are about who you are, yes, there are going to be people that are going to come after you. But I also think there's a huge population of people that are going to respect you, even if they don't agree with you, and make decisions on that. I, I think that's part of the third way that we're called to do. And I'm not saying that we have a, the Christian perspective on creation and the age of the earth or... LGBTQ, same-sex marriage stuff. I'm just telling you, the planning ahead and being clear, respectful, living quiet lives has helped us, has helped me thrive for 10 years in this role when I know on other places it's, it's torn people up. So, for what that's worth. It, it's a different way of saying Harvey McKay, this great leadership author, not a Christian. is has this great book called Dig Your Well Before You're Thirsty. Um, I often say that to my team. Like, what are we working on today? that we spend a little bit of time on that's going to save us problems in the future. And then yeah, Andy Groves only, the paranoid survivor. the CEO of Intel, right? Intel was making lots of money on the 8088 chip. And he's like, we are no longer selling 8088 chips a year from now. Develop the next chip. Because somebody else is doing it. And Andy was that kind of a forward thinker. And I think that's a leadership capability. Um, the last group wanted to have me tell you what we do at Creation Age Earth. I'm happy to, unless that's not of interest to anybody. But after I gave that, I wasn't going to say what it was. And somebody said, no, tell <laughs> us. Um, so Dort says four things. One is God did it. God did it intentionally. Um, we teach about naturalistic evolution because we do believe that is the dominant theory in the world today about how um, it is. We don't set up naturalistic evolution as a straw man just to kick it down. We have students that are going to go on to med school and grad school and that is the dominant paradigm at secular universities that give doctorates and master's degrees. So we want them to know about it, but we also show them um, where it falls apart in terms of a biblical framework. And we also say that human beings are a separate and distinct creation from the rest of creation. That is, right, we, are, you know, we have an agriculture school, right? Um, when a chicken gets killed, it's a chicken. It's not you know, a, a relative. So that's why we differentiate it. Human beings. So God did it. God did it intentionally. Um, we any theory of creation or origins that divorces God from the, the process. We will teach about, but we will not. We will not teach that it is true. And human beings are separate and distinct. So what what's begun to happen that way? Um, again, hiring. It's been wonderful to be able to hire people. Um, probably, we have, we have had one or two people who believe that, that naturalistic evolution is the way and they can make their Christianity and naturalistic evolution come together, it's fine. We've got professors who believe that the cosmos are billions and billions of years old, but that God used processes, right, the creation science or the intelligent design. We've got professors who believe that. We've got professors who are young earth creationists. And the job of our faculty, theology, chemistry, biology, is not to make students believe a particular perspective on it, but it's to make students be able to understand their perspective in light of both scientific evidence as well as biblical revelation. So, if a student comes to the door as a 624-hour young earth creation believer, our professor's jobs are not to disabuse them of that, but it is to have them look through a telescope and see light coming from 30 million light years away and be able to explain that in light of that they believe the creation is 15,000 years old. If the student comes to it and say, well, God created that light uh, in motion on the way to the earth 15,000 years ago, that's a plausible Christian perspective on it. It sets God up to be kind of confusing God, but it's okay, right? But we're not to disabuse them of that. That's not our job. Our job is not to tell teach them what to think about creation. It's how to think. And how to think blends the Belgic Confession, article two, in which we say, how do we come to know God? come to know God first through the university that's like an open book in front of us at all times, and we come to know him even more through scripture as revealed Word in, in Jesus Christ. So we put those two things together, and if a student wants to be a young earth creationist, we are not there to break that faith. We are to build upon that faith. And we've had students change, we've had, but we teach a whole course, a whole semester on origins, built out of our perspective document that we wrote long before it was an issue. And it's just, it's literally saved us, I would say, thousands of hours and lots of contention by having that kind of statement. We tried a similar statement on same-sex, didn't work out quite as happily, <laughs> um, but but it is kind of the dominant frame. So, thank you for what that's worth. Yeah, please. What does that say on same-sex? Well, we believe Scripture um, that there are men and there are women. Um, that that that's how God created us to be two separate and distinct sexes, gender, and then that um, sexual activity is only uh, normative, allowed for, given uh, glory to God in a marriage between one man and one woman, and we expect our students to live according to their biological um, birth at, at sex at birth. Um, and again, I told you the grad student that applied and read that. And again, we don't have. Again, it's it's the clarity with which we do these things that we are going have a banner up at campus visit days, right, proclaiming that. But if a student cares about it, they're going to ask about it in their college search process. And then we tell them about how it's going to be. Faculty, I, I still interview every faculty member that comes into work for, for a job. And I ask them a, a number of questions. One is, one of our contractual obligations is you have to uh, become an active member of a reformed congregation. It can be about seven different denominations, but it has to be a reformed uh, church. Do you understand that? You either have to send your kids to Christian day schools or homeschool. Um, you cannot send children to, to community schools if you're a faculty member at Duke. And three, have you read our policy on human sexuality? And do you agree to live that way? But also not for other to advocate for others to live any other way. And so those pieces that we've been doing for about twenty years have. And somebody asked me in the last session, "Do you have you lost faculty applicants because of that?" Um, and I would say I know that there are people that won't apply at DORC because they don't stand for that. Um, I have had a couple of faculty members um, in, the, in the late stages of the process have a long dialogue with me and the vice president about how we apply that because we're also extremely gracious to our students, playing the long game as I described. Um, and we're working with students continually, always pointing in that direction. But we have had a couple of faculty members who said, you know what? Mostly, it was, Oh, it was, well, we actually, yeah, we talked about contentious firings. Uh, last year, we had a faculty member who had worked at Dork for 12 years um, who changed his position on it. He was uh, heterosexually married, but he just said, I can't, I can't work here anymore if that's the way you're going to handle it. And so we didn't renew his contract, and, and he got another job. So we, we have had things like that. So is that enough of an answer without... How much of that's been live-tweeted to the world by now? It seems like the collegiate setting has... A- Faculty that like you mentioned that if they disagree, they can go somewhere else. For those of us who teach grade schools, secondary schools, where the students are sent there by their parents and don't have that level of choice or autonomy to go somewhere else, how do you partner with those parents well, but also work with students who are facing some of those conflicting, yeah. well these questions and challenges? No, I do think you know and a couple things. One is uh, I encourage if. if Sexuality on your campus is that big a deal. Tomorrow, Claire DeGraff. Um, Claire's gonna be presenting tomorrow twice. Uh, I really encourage you to go to the session. I am not here as an LGBTQ sexual expert. That's not, mine is like organizational leadership. I'm happy to talk about specifics. Um, but yeah, the K-12 situation is different, right? When you've got a fourth grader your parents and, and all that, I, I don't pretend to know all that. Um, I think Brenda just said, You've dealt with a lot of contentious things at Dort and you're still standing. Um, can you try to have some leadership lessons? So I uh, I think that's better probably taken up by, like Case, Tim Consolan, uh, Dort uh, play the Center for the Advancement of Christian Education. I know Tim works with boards and heads of school a lot on, on those kinds of things. Covenant school, missional school, policies and those kinds of things. That's not really my expertise. I apologize for not being um, better able on that. Other thought, please talk more about LGBTQ? Uh, yeah, but specifically. Um, yeah, I'll tell you about did I earn, sorry, I just presented this two hours ago. Did I already say the question about where is Jesus in this? That, yes. yes, it is. That, that's where campus ministries and student <coughs> services starts but trying to have a different conversation, playing what we call the long game. Um, and I know, you know I've gotten letters from, from alumni you know, a month after graduation saying you know my time at Dort I just didn't feel validated and those kind of things. Um, you know about this lawsuit called Hunter versus Department I didn't even write that in my examples. Hunter versus the Department of Education. Does this ring a bell for anybody? Okay yeah I'll be happy to. Um, so there's a guy uh, his name is Paul Southwick. He runs an organization called REAP, R-E-A-P, the Religious Exemption Accountability Project. So Dort has a religious exemption on Title IX, technically, um, that we state we're a religious organization, so we're not bound by, and I'm not talking about that we don't have women athletics. Everybody thinks Title IX is just about women's athletics. It's about way more than that. We've got great female sports teams, and every woman on campus has exactly the same opportunities under education. But there are things about um, yeah, marriage, gender, and sexuality that come in with Title IX. So we have an exemption on that. We're actually on a list. It's called um, the, the hate list or something, I don't know it is, called Campus Pride, he puts it out every year, um, and yeah, uh, we're on that list, um, that's why I go to that. So, um, this Paul Southwick on social media about three years ago put a notice out on Facebook and Twitter and said, are you a student at a Christian college um, who's queer, who feels like your institution doesn't affirm you, if so, contact me. So. We um, got 32 students um, in a lawsuit, it's a class action lawsuit against the Department of Education and we have two DORT students, one, I mean, yeah, you can look it up, one's um, Lauren Hookstra. no relation, um, but was in my wife's class, she was an education major, um, Lauren, while well, she was a student, brought this lawsuit against the, again, it's the Department of Education, not against DORT. Um, I signed her diploma. Um, I still have in a relationship with Lauren, and Lauren interestingly would say this, that that Robert Taylor, our Vice President for Student Services, she said, um, was as much a dad to me as my own dad. I love my experience at Dort, Um, and two weeks before the lawsuit hit, she sat in my office we had a conversation, because again, I'm willing to talk to people, and she said, Eric, I just don't get it. Um, Dort's like been the best place I've ever been. What I can't understand is if I graduate and get married to a woman, you'll never hire me. I said, "Yes, I won't." I mean, that's the the line of that's that's the line that door won't cross. And just being um, loving but clear, I think, is is how we have have tried to do it. But we're working with a number of students along the way and trying to play the long game. And um, I don't know if that's helpful anyway. But yeah, i forgot forgotten about Hunter versus Department of Education. So we have two door grads who were. In that lawsuit, and I've read their complaints. And you know, in their complaints, they said, you know, professors at Dort said all gay people are going to hell. And I actually asked them after that lawsuit came out, I said, which professor said that? Because I would sanction that professor if they said, well, it wasn't really a professor that said that, it was just the general feeling that I got. From one of those <laughs> okay, because I, like I say, I'm willing to, if a professor would ever say that in class, um, I would be all over it. So anyway, we're trying to move that. So, enough fun. Topic until you all to clear the graphics piece tomorrow, really, right? I don't specialize in that. Um, but I really want to credit my predecessor for, for this piece about creation. And I think we're trying to be proactive, and I think that's your responsibility um, as a leader. A couple thoughts at the end. Um, if you're interested in these topics more generally sorry, you knew I was gonna be. Do you know who John Stonestreet is? The Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Great point. I think he's a really helpful thing But one of my favorite quotes is to be hard on ideas and soft on people. And I'd say that's how Campus Ministries is working with students. Um, when we've had employees and we've had alcoholism amongst our employees and that kind of thing they're like, we've got to deal with the issue, but we're also going to minister to you along the way. And I think John's John's perspective on that is great. Another one that I love is Brian Natsen. Um Great article, Taking Every Political Thought Captive. Um, he says Christians need to learn to walk and chew gum at the same time I just love that piece right to again I think that's what Jesus is asking us in this third way of saying you know don't fall for it It needs to be this or that we can walk and chew gum. we can take whatever it is Um, problems organizational problems seriously we can take polarity seriously but we can also find the unity in Christ Um, I really love Brian and John um, in terms of these things Um, yeah, we don't talk about this, but I think it's a great perspective for us um, in our schools and in our churches um, to kind of look at it and say, yeah, we might want to, did I give you the, the, the lots of sexual senate door on the weekend commentary? <laughs> okay, sorry, I forget what I say here and there. A um, couple of thoughts of some books for you to read. Um, ben Sachs, a friend of mine, former college president, uh, senator from Nebraska, he's actually going to become the new president of the University of Florida. He's a reformed Christian. Um, grew up in the, uh, went to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. Uh, just interviewed for the University of Florida and 500 protesters outside screaming so they had to make the, uh, the interview go on Zoom. Um, that is a great guy. But this book, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal, really good stuff in that book. Um, I would encourage you, your leadership team, your, your boards at your schools. Um, Arthur Brooks, um, Love Your Enemies. How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. I really do think that Christians need to step forward in this moment um, and do some things differently. A couple of other books, John and Azu, um, Confident Pluralism. Um, John goes back to American history and says, pluralism has always been a part of America. Um, yeah, you can have, read great things about how America was founded by deists or Christians, yes. But pluralism is in our constitution from the standpoint of we don't have a national religion. But how do be confident in that? And I think that we don't have to flight, we don't have to get away from the world, but we also don't have to fight. But probably the best book is Rich Mao. Rich is just-retired trustee at Dort, um, wrote this book called Uncommon Decency. Um, and Rich says this about, it. he says, when you meet somebody who you might disagree with, spend uh, the majority of the time finding out what you agree on, before you spend time on what you disagree. And he gives the example of, of Catholics. You know, Rich and an evangelical Catholics. He says, you know, if you first meet a Catholic and the first thing that comes to your mind is, I want to talk to you about Mary, you're starting from the wrong spot. As opposed to saying to Catholics, you know what? Thanks for showing up after Roe v. Wade was decided by the Supreme Court, because you Catholics were there for like 25 years at the March for Life before we evangelicals even knew it was an issue. like say something kind to people who are are different than you and get your relationship off to the good things because muslims jews right there's even if it's like find the good stuff first rich is just a beautiful man he's got relationships with the LDS church that are just amazing and uncommon decency barb teaches our course on inequality and diversity in our teacher education program and she uses Rich's book for a textbook. And I just really encourage us to, to kind of live in that direction. There's one the of our grads over there. So I hope something today has been helpful. I, if I've offended you in any way or, or, or whatever, I apologize. That was not my intent. I just want to have real conversations with real people. And if, if there is something that you enjoyed, um, the thanks that you can give me is, is syndicate to um, a campus visit at Dort um, or Northwestern, honestly. Um, if, what you do, people choose every day to send your, their kids to your schools instead of the free schools down the street. We're in the same boat. I understand Iowa State, Michigan State is not free, um, but we're in the same boat. And, and I just really want to encourage you, If I think the issue of, of sticky faith is following up Christian K-12 with Christian college. Um, the, all the data that I've seen, CARDIS has done some amazing work on this. We're not perfect at Dort. We're not the only school. There's about 30 schools that I would trust my grandkids to um, across America. Dort's not the only one. But get them on campuses, Lean into them a little bit. Don't get so enamored with these big state universities. And when kids want, oh, I got into Harvard. Who cares? Like, go to Harvard for grad school. We'll help you get in. Northwestern will help you get in. Um, but if, you, if, if there's anything valuable in what I've said today, your greatest thanks is to get them on a campus visit to Christian colleges, because um, we'll help reinforce what's happening in your schools. And I want to thank you for your work among, in my life as well as in the lives of my children, and keep doing it well until Christ comes again. Have a great day. Amen.